when my kids were in high school, uh, my son played football, and it wasn't uncommon for me to come home at the end of the day and see a bunch of his buddies at the house. Um, they would be sprawled out on couches, napping, all kinds of things, and we actually liked it that way. One day I came home, and they were sitting around the kitchen table, and there was a young man, 23, 24 years old, uh, sitting at the table and studying the Bible with them. They didn't tell me they were studying the Bible, um, so I, I introduced myself and waited till everybody left, and then I got to know this young Bible study leader, and I asked him his name, and he'd played high school football at their school, and then went on to play a little bit of college football, and so the kids admired them, and I asked him, what church do you go to? And he goes, well, it's, we just call it the church. And I go, okay, so the name is the church? And he said, yeah, the name is the church. And I go, well, w- where do you meet? And he's like, well, we meet at homes, and we meet here, and we meet there. And I was like, okay, hold on a second. So how do I find out about your church? Do you have a website or anything? I said, no, we don't. We just kind of have, you know. Um, and I said, well, what do you believe? And it was another evasive. Every question had an evasive answer. It's like, eh. And, and it began to dawn on me because, you know, I spent 15 years on the campus at Florida State University as a pastor to students over a long time. I'd seen this movie before. This is a cult moving in on a group of kids. And it's because it's, it's all evasion. What do you believe? Well, you know, we just kind of trust the Spirit to guide us. And, and so the kids sort of dispersed, and he was there, and I walked him to his car, and I said, I, I appreciate that you mean well, but I'm going to ask you not to come to my house with the boys anymore. I'd like you to stay away from them. And you think, wow, Pastor Chuck, that's kind of gutsy of you there, Chief. Uh, wasn't he just intending something nice? Wasn't that sort of mean of you? And, and I'm like, no, nah, not really. Because I've, I've seen what happens when people get caught in the jaws of a cult. In California, we've got a rich history here of cult leaders preying on unsuspecting people and campuses and students who are young and enthusiastic but not particularly wise or educated. They, they're really easy prey for cults. And so on one hand, it may look like I wasn't doing something loving, but in truth, I mean, just by confronting the guy, maybe he said, maybe I need to rethink this. This guy wasn't all that warm to this notion. And then maybe when he eventually runs into a problem with the cult, which he will, uh, he'll go, okay, this is what that bald guy who threw me out of his house was talking about. But let me flip it on its end. I was being loving. I was just being loving to my son and his friends. I mean, you know, so you can say, well, gosh, that seems a little harsh, but I like, I wasn't mean to the guy, but I was straightforward and truthful in the interest of protecting somebody else. So if you take this mindset and you sort of impose it on today's text, you might be able to understand why the religious leaders of Jesus's day were concerned and wanted to intervene and keep people from following a cult leader. But I have to say, that was not the entire motive of these religious leaders, Uh, It was for some, as we'll see, uh, there was a theological concern, but more than anything, as history has taught us, this was a lot about power and control. There may even been a monetary fear involved. We are studying in Acts, we are now in Acts 4, Uh, the last two weeks previous we were in Acts 3, and so let me give you a, a quick review if you weren't here, there was a lame man healed, uh, right outside the gates of the temple complex. 
And then Peter came in with a group of people uh, and they began to do what they had come to do regularly, which was they go inside the temple area and near this, this porch area, they began to teach and preach. Now, in case you wonder what this looks like, I, I brought a picture along. This is kind of an artist's rendering of what the temple area would have looked like. Uh, the gates would have been the way you got into this rather large complex, but all along the edges of this complex were what were called porticos. And this all was taking place, this Peter's sermon and John's addresses in, in Solomon's portico. The uh, Jewish historian Josephus describes the colonnade as this roofed porch. It would have been on the east side of the complex. Um, the post-healing message was spoken there. And throughout the course of that day, uh, people were becoming Christians. It started to get dark. Believers, imagine the believers were welcoming and getting people's names, filling out orange cards. No, they weren't really doing that. But they, but they were really trying to say, hey, listen, we're a community. Come, be a part of this. You can, you can see this all happening. Very exciting. All these people coming to the Lord. And then this happens. Look at Acts 4, verses 1 through 3. As they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple of the, and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed. I love that, the, that that's translated that way. Because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. For the record, this is the first recorded arrest the first of many that would come for these first century Christian evangelists in the book of Acts. The Sadducees, if you're wondering who they are, they were one of two groups of Jewish theologians who were part of the ruling council that was known as the Sanhedrin. The Sadducees were spearheading this particular persecution because they didn't believe in a literal bodily resurrection after death. And so seeing this huge group of people respond to this proclamation about Jesus coming back from the dead and there being eternal life in Christ and life beyond the grave. And, and these guys were, well, annoyed. Uh, let's just say that's probably putting it mildly. Um, they saw this throng, a group that was now growing to about 5,000 in number. And before we actually look at three things. I have three observations about today's narrative. It's important to acknowledge what's happening here because it's going to happen a number of times in the book of Acts. And it's a reality for a Christian in the post-everything world we live in. In a, in a world where there's an increasing level of hostility towards Christian faith, um, what we have to be able to see is that no matter how well you prepare, no matter how softly, graciously, carefully you choose your words, no matter how um, kind you are uh, in and around your life with people who might hear you talk about the gospel, it is a fact that some people are going to react angrily to your message. This is just going to happen. It happened to Jesus. It happened to the apostles. It's going to happen to you and to me. And it does not necessarily mean that you've done anything wrong. In some cases, it means you've done something right. Um, God's pattern is to use people as conduits through whom his message of forgiveness and restoration is proclaimed. Now, accompanying this message of forgiveness is 
a requirement to turn and follow Jesus and make a commitment to walk with him and to submit your life to his understanding, to his commands about how you're supposed to live. And as we studied last week, this call to repentance is, is really a call to honor God by submitting to his word. And this is where the rubber hits the road. This is the main source of irritation for people. And that is whenever the word submit comes up in our culture, everyone has this guttural sort of, like just hearing it just sounds so like, I'm not going to submit to the king. I mean, our whole country is built on this notion of personal individual rights and rebellion, and we are no longer submitting. And so the idea that we would have a Lord who would rule over us, the creator of our souls and the recreator of our souls for Christ's glory, that he would come and say, I'm going to be your Lord. Well, this is the source of that agitation, that tension you might feel. You see it in the early church's proclamation. You could certainly see it in the 21st century church's proclamation. But it's not new, obviously. It was part of the Old Testament experience, too. And I, I read from Second Chronicles 36, 15 through 16. This is what the Lord says about the Old Testament prophets. The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by his messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they kept mocking the messengers of God despising his words and scoffing at his prophets until the wrath of God rose against his people, until there was no remedy. God wants people to know he loves them. And so he continues to prophesy. He continues to bring the truth of his word. And yet people will still be agitated by that. Now, we certainly must be tactful and gracious, humble, honest, but in reality, we can learn quite a bit from today's passage in Acts 4 about what it means to, through the power of God's presence, speak a powerful proclamation to powerful people. And these are really the three observations I want to make today. The first is this, powerful people. I mean, as you look at the experience of the, of the first apostles, they are encountering the most powerful people in their subculture. Now, obviously, the Romans ruled the world, but the Jews were given quite a bit of latitude to rule in Jerusalem. And certainly in the culture of the Jews, the people that Peter and John were running up against were the elite. I read, On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. The next morning. So that means Peter and John spent the night in jail. I don't know what the jail was like, but all I can say is that must have been a bit of a frightening experience. They must have thought to themselves, all we were doing was proclaiming the truth and now they arrested us and put us in jail. And then they get brought before these leaders. Now, the group listed here consists of the Jewish ruling council, or what was known as the Sanhedrin. Um, it included the chief priests and the scribes. That might, they might have been the, the, the executive council. Um, you also see, though, included in all this are some really key characters. Um, you have Annas, the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the official high priest. Important note here. Uh, you have Annas, 
um, called the high priest, but in reality in 15 AD, the Romans had deposed him. And so this is sort of like, a, like one of these great movies where you've got this father-in-law who used to be the high priest, and then his son, Caiaphas, now called the high priest. And what historians think is that Annas is really sort of the power behind the throne, that Caiaphas may be the high priest, but the father-in-law is the one kind of sort of directing and calling the shots, which is why uh, Luke, the author of the book of Acts, would have said that Annas was the high priest. Most people actually thought he was anyway. And then you have all these relatives that are associated with this crowd. Um, you've got power in place. And the disciples were quickly moving into a role that Jesus had told them they were going to assume. Our Lord had told them that if they persecuted Jesus, they were going to persecute them. He told them when the Holy Spirit filled them that they'd be His witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And given that we're early in our study in the book of Acts, what we're looking at is the first phase of that journey, that first phase of that mission, which is Jerusalem. Here they are, these power people concerned about the masses that were now calling themselves followers of the risen Christ. You have to ask, were they genuinely concerned for the souls of these people or more concerned about their power base or the financial support that might be going away? And of course, history's told us that holding on to one's power or holding on to one's group's power are part of the very sinful nature of every human being. And we recognize that they see that their market share is kind of dwindling here. Uh, verses 16 and 17 of Acts 4, it says, What do we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may be spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. This is really remarkable. These are people that would otherwise be threatening and frightening. The biblical word and encouragement for us from this passage today has the most direct application for sharing the gospel with other people. But if we're going to make another more day-to-day -day application for us, it would be that we don't need to fear powerful people. Um, he allows those with worldly influence to sometimes seemingly negatively influence our lives. But we can be sure that all of it is to accomplish His good purposes in us. As the Reverend Mother used to say, when a door closes, a window somewhere opens. So if you're not a Sound of Music person, you totally don't get that reference. But I'm just saying, what you know is that God's in control. So that if something you want is not available to you, that in essence is His sovereign grace guiding you to something else. You and I can be sure, and we talk about it a lot at PRISM, and we are redundant about it because it's important and it's critical to understand if we're going to have peace in this world. But if God's plan for our salvation in Christ meant that evil people would for a time think they got away with crucifying Jesus after unjustly accusing and trying Him, if this was God's plan for how He was going to bring about our redemption, then we ought to take heart when cruddy people seem to be mucking up our worlds. This is not beyond God's control. In fact, it's part of His plan. We just can't see the end. And one of the reasons we have these narratives is so that we can see, okay, things look really bad for these disciples, but we've already read at the end of Acts 4 and verses 22 that they go free. 
So you know that even though in the middle of all this, they've had to have these really kind of scary or ugly encounters with powers that ultimately God gets his way. And this is why Proverbs 21.1 should be a real encouragement to you. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Wherever he will, the Lord just moves it. And that's the encouragement from Scripture. That's what you and I ought to know for sure. Powerful people really aren't all that powerful. What you see also in this passage is powerful presence. Verses 7 and 8 says, And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, By what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, You know, Peter's going to tell them that the power that healed the lame man was the power of the risen Jesus through the Holy Spirit. But the power I love seeing evidenced here is the power Peter needed to speak this boldly before these incredible, incredibly influential people. It says, Peter filled with the Holy Spirit. Peter is in way, way over his head. Naturally speaking... He's an undereducated fisherman up against the great theological minds of his day and the culture's elite. Verse 12 even says that they, they recognize that John and Peter were pretty bold for a couple of uneducated fishermen. Uh, but they noticed and remembered, oh yeah, these guys were with Jesus. These guys walked with Jesus. And isn't this the key to boldness after all? Having somebody bigger and stronger with you? Aren't you more courageous when there are people around you that are armed? Like every Sunday morning, except for this morning, I I usually go to Tom's. It's this little diner I talk about every now and again. And I get some coffee there because it's 6 a.m. on Sunday. It's the safest place on planet Earth. Because at 6 a.m. on Sunday morning, it's me, the cashier, and six of... Pasadena police officers that are in the corner having breakfast together. There's no place on earth where you'd feel a greater sense of peace. I mean, nobody's going to harm me in that place in that morning. And, And so there's a boldness, there's a freedom, there's a sense of I'm not unsafe at all here. For a minute, can you think of the smartest, maybe most intimidating people in your life? And then you have to ask, What if they put you on the spot and made you start answering questions about the gospel? What if they just said, hey, come in here for a minute. I want to talk to you. You think these people are really, really smart. You think these people are really, really bright. And and what happens is is, uh, they start peppering you with all kinds of things that you, naturally speaking, don't know if you have the answers to. Well, it would be scary. Jesus, though, promised us that he'd meet us at that very time. He had told the disciples this when he was walking with them and he'd commissioned them to do some things. He told them these very words, Luke 12, 11 and 12. And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. Imagine the encouragement that John and Peter were to each other, reminding each other that night. We're about to stand in front of people that all our life we have looked at from a distance and said, you know those guys in Jerusalem that run the show? 
I mean, we're Jews and we have our little synagogue here in Galilee we go to and I'm sure there's a power structure and all sorts of things associated with this religious ruling and the council of the whole nation. But these are the top dogs. And now all of a sudden these two guys who followed Jesus are standing in front of them. And can you imagine them saying, do you remember when Jesus told us? Do you remember what he told us? He said, we don't have to worry at all. When we get in front of these people, he's going to give us the words. While this section of Scripture demonstrates the available wisdom of the Holy Spirit while being a witness for Jesus, another practical takeaway for us is that in pressing situations, we can look to God for counsel on any subject, and He's promised to generously give it. Are you in a spot in a relationship that you need some wisdom? Is work going difficult? You know, is it hard? Are there relationships? Do you know what to do? Is there something puzzling you? Is your marriage in a bit of a quandary? Are you having challenges with the children? Well, I know our first instinct oftentimes is self, you know, pick us up by our own bootstraps, self-made Americans. We like to go, I'll take care of this myself. Don't worry about it. I got it. But Jesus is encouraging you and I to have a different approach, which is to ask him humbly for the wisdom. In James 1.5, it says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given. This is the promise of Scripture, that you have within you a, a powerful presence if you're a Christian. And the Holy Spirit is there to impart wisdom to you through His Word, through other people. However He chooses to do it, all I can tell you is that He's told you and I that sometimes the reason we don't have this wisdom is because we haven't really asked for it. Because we're thinking instinctively, I'll cover this. I got this covered. Imagine what Peter and John, the mess they'd have been in in front of these really brilliant minds if they'd gone in there and said, hey, you know, I'm a pretty good fisherman. I got this. You know, I'm a, I'm a tough cat. I'm from Galilee. You know, we're, we're a rough bunch. And by my nature, I've always made it happen. You know, I build stuff for my family. I fish till it's dark. I feed. I, I'm a, I'm a, I do not need other people. I'm a proud guy. So I'll take this one, John. I'm going to go up in front of the Sadducees and Pharisees myself. and I'm going to give it to the high priest. I got that within me. They'd have gotten torched. Torched. They needed the humility to know that they were depending on the powerful presence of the Holy Spirit. And last but certainly not least, I will tell you the that there's a powerful proclamation going on. So we've got some powerful people. You've got the powerful presence of the Holy Spirit, and then it produces this, this really powerful proclamation. These are the words that they spoke to the high priests, to the Pharisees and the Sadducees. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given by which men must be saved. Now, Peter had a boldness, John 2, that was born of the presence of the Holy Spirit. But there was a bold message they were proclaiming here, too. They were not pulling punches with the most powerful people of their subculture. Even telling them in verse 10 that it was... By the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, who you crucified and God raised from the dead. This is funny. They dropped another res bomb on the Sadducees. They didn't, the Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection. And here comes, by the power of the Holy Spirit, 
Peter, and by the way, he rose from the dead again. You know, you can just imagine those cats being like, ah, oh, I just can't stand these Christian guys. They're just are irritating me. They're annoying. Well, Peter's willing to tell them they were responsible. All of these bold statements about Jesus being the only way to be saved. Remember, these things, these statements, these bold, these powerful proclamations were made after they'd spent a night in the clink. So, I mean, you'd think after spending a night in jail, I mean, if it was me, I'd be like, hey, Stephen, Stephen and I got arrested. We got to throttle this back a bit. You know, I'd get in front of the council and I'd be like, all right, let me try to explain myself. All right, what I wasn't trying to do was offend any, but I mean, I wouldn't have gone like to the next level with it. And this is exactly what the Holy Spirit does with regards to the declaration. And you wonder why. I mean, why did they ratchet, it seems, ratchet it up to the point where they might have further agitated these people? And some might observe that Peter and John are taking another dig at the Sadducees or being insensitive to the reality that there are people present who are avowed haters of all things Jesus, especially his annoying followers. But let me put another spin on this. First, I think being truthful to people, even if they react angrily to it, is not necessarily a bad thing. And anybody who's ever had to confront an addict has to be prepared for this. I mean, when you tell an addict and you are a part of an intervention and you go, we think you have a problem, we want to start telling you about how you've affected our lives negatively, and you've seen the show Intervention, it never goes like, well, I mean, 99 times out of 100, the person throws something or starts cursing at you or, you know, there's just a, there's an unwillingness to hear truth, but people that love them say, this is, this is for you. It doesn't embarrass me that you're a heroin addict. It doesn't embarrass me that you're doing these things. I'm worried about you, and you are locked in, and I'm trying to jar you loose to see how this is hurting you. This is a passionate, tough love. So I think that people reacting angrily to the proclamation of truth can be a sign that something really beautiful and good is going on. In the case of the disciples, though, they... They were not just proclaiming this bold truth to the Sanhedrin who were hard-hearted and needed to be jarred. There is, remember, a lot of people watching this, spectators, it's the average Joe who, who need to hear the gospel. And they could say, well, we don't want to offend these cultural elites. But in not offending the cultural elites, they deprive a, a mass of humanity from hearing about the love Christ has for his people and they love the lost among the people enough to risk alienating their leaders alienating those who said we don't want you to speak in this name anymore they did this so that others could hear the good news about the resurrection of Jesus and the forgiveness and healing that's available in his name when I was in college I was part of Campus Crusade it's now known cool as crew because crusade has all these really bad sort of connotations associated with it. So, 
you know, you don't want to be the group that's crusading across campus in the name of Jesus. That just doesn't fly anymore. And the 80s wasn't quite such a problem. But then again, there are a whole lot of things that were not such a big problem in the 80s that we can't go into today that are problematic now. Anyway, one of the things you do as a campus crew person is you go to the beach on spring break to spend your week telling spring breakers about the gospel. Now, on paper, this doesn't sound like such a good idea. You know, when you think about it, when I think about it now, I think that's not something I'd probably even sign up for. I mean, I've been a Christian a long time now, but I'm pretty sure I wouldn't sign up to walk on the beach, walk up to strangers who were either on the way to getting drunk or already there and say, hey, can I talk to you about Jesus? You know, I just don't imagine that going well. Surprisingly, it did go well during the day. When you were at Daytona Beach, you'd be surprised how quickly people get bored. I mean, they were way drunk the night before. So somewhere in the morning to midday, they haven't even really started into drinking yet because they're still sort of detoxing from the night before. And so they're just kind of, they're drinking Gatorade and eating lunch and they're just trying to almost prep up for the next night of binging. So there isn't quite as much debauchery as you'd imagine. There's just a lot of really hungover people and, and they're bored. And so you can, during the day, walk up to somebody and go, how's it going? I'm with crew, uh, See, I've already adapted to coolness. Um, and and I, I'm here to talk to students like me. I'm a college student at West Virginia. And I was wondering if I could get a, take out a religious interest survey, which again worked back in the 80s. You know, people were really, they thought, oh, a religious interest survey, sure. I'll spend some time doing that with you. But it's this completely leading survey where the last question of the survey is, if you could know God personally, would you like to? Which, of course, everybody says yes to. And then it's like, hey, look what I have here, a booklet that says how to know God personally. And so back when I was a 20-year-old, people were suckers. And they didn't realize, you know, there weren't infomercials or the internet, and there wasn't spam email of people asking you for money from all over the world. There just weren't those things. So people were a little more gullible. And so that kind of survey actually worked. Granted, daytime, Daytona, people. Nighttime was a little different. Nighttime was party time. And so they took some of us who wanted to be thought of as commandos, and they actually called it the commando team, and we would go to hotels, and we would walk in and crash parties and see if there were people we could talk to about Jesus, which sounds like a really bad idea now. But we, and I say we because they partner you up with a female, a male with a female, female with a male, and we walked into this party at this hotel, and everybody was like very warm and welcoming, just, how you doing, how you doing? And then after a while, they realized who we were, and people started having conversations with us. And then the next thing you know, people are leaving this hotel room. So we we're killing this party. And the guy who had put on the party now starts having a conversation with me and then says, well, come out here on the porch. And so by the time we're out on the porch, me and four guys randomly selected by God to sit on there, drink beer and talk with me about Jesus, the whole the whole hotel room had, had emptied out but for one young woman sitting with my friend. And so while I'm out there answering their questions as best I can about Jesus and why I'm here, my friend is in there talking to this girl who confesses to her that she's a Christian and that she's been running from God so that she could be with this guy. And over the objections of her parents and everybody else, she came on spring break with this guy. And into her world comes this Christian who says, God hasn't forgotten about you. 
You can't run from him. He loves you. He's come all the way to Florida to remind you of this. When we left that building, we couldn't believe what we had been a part of. But I want to reflect on the number of people who saw us there, and as I would if I wasn't a Christian and I was getting drunk on spring break, left the party going, I hate those religious people. They're freaky and weird. Let's find another party. I mean, there were a lot of people who did that. We offended, quote unquote, a number of people. But it was worth it. It was worth it because there were four men who I got to share the gospel with. There was a young woman who Jesus loved a lot who needed to hear that the Lord hadn't forgotten about her. Yeah, some people were, not aff- were offended by the fact that Christians were bold and it was seemingly communicating by implication that they weren't living for Christ and they didn't know God and that made them mad so they left to another party But God loves people enough to not only remind these people, you need me and have them get mad. There was a group of people who needed us to be that bold so they could hear the gospel. I close with 2 Corinthians 2 verses 14 through 16. The Apostle Paul writes, But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, And through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of Him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. Let us pray.